Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Canfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Ojibwe, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. Victor's Children is a member of the Harbinger Media Network, a community working to promote left podcasts in Canada. Check out the list of Harbinger podcasts at harbingermedianetwork.com. It's been great to see the speed with which a movement against Israel's genocidal assault on Gaza has arisen. And it's important that many people who are taking action are going beyond the absolutely necessary call for a ceasefire and naming the root of the problem as Zionist settler colonialism across the territory of historic Palestine. As people learn about settler colonialism, they may learn about how a century ago, a section of the British ruling class supported Zionism because they wanted, in the words of one of them, a little loyal Jewish Ulster in a sea of potentially hostile Arabism. In other words, they favored a Jewish state in Palestine that will be a reliable bastion for British imperialism in the region, similar to what in Ireland, the Protestant-dominated counties loyal to the British state were in relation to the rest of Ireland at a time when most people in Ireland wanted to end British colonial rule. As people today learn about the history of Israel, they learn that the U.S. backed its creation, as did the USSR, which too few people on the left know and understand. They learn how the U.S. and other Western states have continued to support Israel's oppression of the Palestinians, even under its current government, the most right-wing in Israel's history. They learn that Joe Biden said that, to quote, uh, if there if there was not an Israel, we'd have to invent one. And so they ask why. Of course, there's more than one explanation, but many people are rightly drawn to the idea that this Western support for Israel has to do with an unjust U.S.-dominated global system, imperialism. And so many supporters of Palestine identify with opposition to imperialism, which is most welcome. Of course, this brings up the question of what is imperialism? Some people think about it just in terms of bad policies, policies that are unjust towards the global South, but could be changed. Other people think of it more in terms of a system, a system of U.S. domination or the domination of the world by the U.S. and other Western states organized in NATO. However, these ways of understanding imperialism don't go far enough. They don't really grasp what it is. Now, on this podcast, Victor's Children, previous episodes have talked about imperialism, and I encourage interested listeners to check out episode 10 on imperialism, and also three episodes from the year 2023, uh, episodes 31, 32, and 33. To put it briefly, though, I think we should understand imperialism as referring to how capitalism as a global system is organized in a hierarchy in a way that's to the greatest benefit of capital in the regions where capitalism is most developed. So there's a pyramid, and at the top of that pyramid is the U.S., the most dominant power. Below it, we can think of other imperialist states, including the U.K., Germany, France, China, Russia, Canada, and Australia. Below them, there are sub-imperialist states, which have regional power, and in the bottom tier are most of the countries in the world. I think it's helpful to think about all of this in a way that Lenin called an imperialist chain. In other words, there's a hierarchy of states engaged in both economic and geopolitical competition. So if that's imperialism, what does it mean to be against imperialism? From what political perspective should we oppose it? How should we fight against imperialism? To talk about these things, I'm very happy today to have two guests joining me. Could you introduce yourselves? Maybe go from east to west. Hello, everyone. I'm Rama. I am a Syrian-American activist who lives right outside D.C. 
um, born and raised in the Chicago suburbs, um, and I've long time done work in support of Palestinian rights, um, anti-war work, um, anti-Islamophobia work, and really excited to be part of this conversation. And I'm uh, Brian Bean, currently located in so-called Chicago from North Carolina originally. I'm part of the Tempest Socialist Collective, founding editor of Rampant Magazine, and I've done various organizing around imperialism and solidarity with Palestine, um, including um, collaborating on uh, editing the book Palestine, a Socialist Introduction. Okay, thank you. So to begin with, do you have any thoughts to share about the way of understanding imperialism that I've outlined? especially about the difference between just opposing particular government policies like support for Israel or perhaps Western multinational corporations, you know, in the global south and this other way of thinking about imperialism as a, as a facet of capitalism. Yeah, I appreciate you, you know, opening up with that. And I think it's very important when we talk about imperialism today, just recognizing there is really one global economic system in place. Um, and that is, as you mentioned, capitalism, because many times I think, you know, when people think about well, you know, the reason the U.S. is ca- is imperialist versus, you know, China and Russia, not not so much. In their mind, there's still some, like, misunderstanding that, like, these other nations are not capitalist. They're socialist. They're communist. Whatever, you know, propaganda is out there on that. And I think it's very important that we are clear there's one global capitalist system and all of these nation states um, are benefiting from it tremendously. Um, and they are looking for where they can exploit resources, where they can exploit labor. And many times that happen, it's happens to be other smaller nation states um, where folks can come in, again, steal the resources um, or create you know, treaties with governments that then give them cover to exploit resources under more, you know, less under more politically acceptable ways um, and all that. And I think once you start thinking about it that way, it becomes clear why we talk about multiple imperial powers. Why saying, well, what we actually need in the world is, you know, people pushing like we need a multipolar world, which is not necessarily the ideal alternative either. If all these multipolar powers are in fact seeking the same thing, domination of the world um, and supposedly in competition with each other. But in the end, they're okay with actually um, being all exploitative together um, if it makes if it ensures that their world order as it is of them being in power and the rest of the world being subject to them is what the, it continues to be the way it is. Yeah, I think that's an important perspective to have. And I think the other thing that is a component of that um, is that imperialism is not just the policy that's chosen by states, but it is a system rooted in economics that dictates the policies of states. And so Nikolai Bukharin, one of the sort of founders of one of the theories, writes that as war is nothing but the continuation of politics by other means, so is politics nothing but the method of the reproduction of certain conditions of production. Um, And so that's how you get the the situation that we have now that is that of a hostile band of brothers, which is how Marx refers to it, where you have all these leaders of all these different countries who are fraternal in the sense where they're connected by this one system of of capitalism. They go to all the same trade conferences and they have their negotiations at the same time that the nature of competition between different capitalist classes and different nations come in such fierce competition for profits that it breeds 
uh, competition on the economic level, on up to, of course, the most egregious of those, which is uh, war, which always um, comes at the cost of working class people around the world, not those of the rulers who, um, during the wars themselves, go and hobnob at conferences to decide trade deals at um, fancy conference centers and resorts around the world. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts then about um, what it means to be against uh, imperialism, which is part of how capitalism is organized globally, and how that plays out in terms of some of the practical consequences if we're going to be consistently anti-imperialist, not just opposed to U.S. imperialism, although, of course, that's essential, uh, or, in the, of course, in the Canadian state against Canadian imperialism, um, but against imperialism in, in general in a consistent way. Yeah, to me, I mean, I always start with the idea of, you know, the basic idea um, of self-determination um, for people and really giving people understanding that people themselves have agency, have the power to help determine um, what they want and need um, in this life and how we as folks who, you know, maybe in solidarity with different people across the globe, think about how we can change the conditions in order for them to be able to succeed in what they're seeking out. So they, you know, they are able to, again, fulfill um, what they want in their lives and what they feel the future of their lives are. I think when we, what has been very, um, you know, bothersome in the last 10, 15 years on these issues of imperialism um, and what it means to be anti-imperialism is the inability to see beyond a very U.S.-focused lens. And particularly for folks in the United States, um, where they themselves kind of um, practice their own like U.S. exceptionalism of just like, well, you know, the U.S. is so evil that there is like something some exceptional about the U.S. and no one else in the world can ever even reach that. And yes, in this current moment, the U.S. is has is a lot of evil on its hands. But historically, it wasn't always the United States and in the future may not always be in the United States. So when we are fighting now against imperialism, how are we fighting it in a way that's not limiting, you know, what, what we need to do to actually be a free and liberated world across the globe? I don't want to replace the U.S. imperialism with another form of imperialism. That's not my ideal. And then the reality is, I think sometimes folks get caught up in an ideology to the cost of what it means to how you interact with humanity. Um, and again, as I mentioned, I myself, my family is from Syria, and I saw that a lot in the last 10 to 15 years around Syria of just, wait, Syria complicates the viewpoints and the worldview that some people have of the U.S. being the number one evil in the world. Um, and how, how can it be that in Syria, actually, the U.S. is not the number one evil party in the world? There's there are dozens of parties fighting in Syria, continue to fight in Syria, and frankly, the U.S. is not the top problem in the in there. And so, how, what does that mean then for us? Like, how can we reorient then in certain places where we need to step back from this idea that it's only the U.S. that we need to concentrate on, um, and still understanding that yeah, if we are in the U.S., there are particular things that we're going to be able to do because we are in the belly of the beast, the heart of empires, people like to say. Um, but that cannot be done at the cost of understanding there is a larger framework at play. Um, and it does not mean we can throw certain groups under the bus, whether it is Syrians, whether, it is, whether it's Uyghurs who are facing genocide by China, um, whether it's Ukraine and what they're facing with um, Russian occupation. Um, how can we both balance the we need to we focus in on the U.S. because we're in the U.S., but also in a way that doesn't undermine these other struggles and where there are times that actually 
we know, just like we're saying, there's one system in place. So there are actually times where we do have power potentially over these other struggles, even when the U.S. isn't the belligerent. Think about corporate power. Think about the weapons manufacturers, manufacturers, the surveillance companies that are not all U.S.-based, all profiting off of all these things. So I think when we limit ourselves to a framework of just U.S., we're really even limiting the amount, uh, the power we have to actually shift and make change um, across struggles and movements. Maybe I could just ask you one follow-up question, which for the benefit of listeners who may be new to some of these questions and who don't actually know anything about the history of Syria in the 21st century, could you give a really brief thumbnail summary of you know events since maybe 2010 or something like that in Syria, just in the most basic broad brush strokes to illustrate those points that you were just yeah. making? Yeah, we'll definitely throw. And, and I say also, I think it's important with what's happening in Palestine now to sometimes go back and actually figure that history out. Because, you know, there is a continuing link between what's happening in Palestine, the continued existence of these oppressive Arab regimes, um, and how they feed off and help support the continued existence of Zionism in the region and what Israel continues to do to the Palestinian people. So um, we're now, yeah, we're coming up to the anniversary now of the start of what is known as the Arab Springs uh, what became known as the Arab Spring, the re- revolutions against Arab regimes that started in Tunisia in December of 2010. And then um, with a street vendor named Mohammed Ba'azizi who set himself on fire and that um, sparked um, protests across Tunisia for people demanding the fall of the regime. And those protests then spread to Libya, they spread to Bahrain, they spread to Egypt, they spread to Syria, um, they spread to Yemen and all across the region. And in Syria, particularly, um, those uh, protests, um, again, demanding the fall of regime, started in the March of 2011 um, and were quickly met by extreme violence by the regime who really wanted to shut down. This is a regime who um, at the helm is Bashar al-Assad, who inherited power from his father, Hafez al-Assad. They've been in power for decades now, the Assad family. And yeah, the regime retaliated in most horrific ways um, to protests that were, um, you know, involved things that we are familiar with, strikes and sit-ins and protests and um, very creative and beautiful ways of chants and artwork and street theater. And slowly in reaction to the violence from the regime, um, some folks took up to come, took up arms um, and it became more violent. Then we had counter-revolutionary forces step in as well, both in support of the Assad regime, like Russia, like Iran, um, but as well as counter-revolutionary armed groups um, such as um, Al-Qaeda and Daesh. And yeah, the revolution, you know, till this, you know, a lot of many people have been killed. Um, you know, the, the last the UN stopped counting at half a million um, many, many years ago. So the numbers are probably much higher now. Um, the regime has politically disappeared. Many tens of thousands of people, um, millions and millions of refugees across the region and ma- millions more internally displaced. And in this moment, you know, the regime has retaken control of much of the country, minus the northwest part, an area called Idlib that continue that contains a lot of internally displaced people from different parts of Syria. Um, actually, the regime and um, Russia have used the attention on you know Israel's genocide of Gaza to up to increase their airstrikes um, in Idlib um, recently, killing I think the last number was like 200 people in the last couple of months, and so it's tragic 
um, that this is where we have gotten in Syria. But also protests continue to happen against the regime. So I think that is very important that 13 years in and all this violence, protests continue to happen in Idlib. Protests continue to happen in Sueda over the last couple of weeks, which is actually a very, um, which historically is a region um, with um, the Druze minority, which many people assume are just automatically pro-regime. And yet they themselves are now taking to the streets and demanding the fall of the regime. Um, and so, you know, I think that's where the hope continues to be of just like even after all of this violence um, and so many different parties involved in Syria right now that the core values and demands of the revolution we continue to hear from from people on the ground and one last thing I'll say is just like especially we've also seen people take to the streets in solidarity with Gaza especially in Idlib where people are like yes we have bombs falling on our head and that's actually why we feel we need to take to the streets and be in solidarity with the folks who are facing the Israeli bombs in Gaza Right. And just to tie it back to what we were talking about before, you know, the intervention of the Russian state in support of the Syrian state was crucial in keeping it going. And although some people on the left, um, you know, in the West claimed that the U.S. really wanted regime change in Syria, I think they were much more interested in uh, getting rid of, you know, the president. They probably wanted to get rid of Assad, but they certainly didn't want to get rid of the regime because of the role that it plays in the region. Um, so, that's just something to bear in mind if people are hearing some of the kind of uh, easy answer one-liners that you sometimes hear about Syria um, from some people on, on the left. Brian, did you want to come in on anything else about uh, you know the thinking about these questions and, and the practical consequences of consistent anti-imperialism? I mean, I think I would just add more to what Rama was talking about as far as how it limits our politics, um, because what it often does in its application is if you don't have consistent uh, anti-imperialist politics, then you are asking people who are wanting to be involved in organizing um, around, say, something like the war in Iraq. Um, and if you see the world as two opposing camps and not as the system of imperialism as we're describing it, then it means that you have to defend uh, the, the sort of current enemy of the state that you're in. And so it says that, well, no, you can't just oppose the U.S. war in Iraq, but you have to oppose the war in Iraq and uh, advocate for Saddam Hussein or whatever despot else is around there. And it just raises the platform of how you're trying to talk to and engage regular people and asking them to agree with authoritarian regimes that harshly repress um, other folks. And I think essentially what it's about is who is your ally? And, you know, the main driver of global competition uh, right now is between the U.S., as the, the major power in China. Um, and that competition has tremendous economic impacts on working people of the world. It has uh, ripples of, of military, military um, uh, sort of consequences. And uh, it continues, the saber rattling in the, in the South China Sea continues to increase. And so in this context, who are the allies of people um, working class people in the United States. And I think that we should firmly say it's the working people of China. It's not the, the, the China as a whole, but it's saying, hey, we, we think that if we rose up and, you know, got rid of our state and they did the same, then that's how we actually end, break this cycle of competition driven by the drive for profit that fuels capitalist competition and fuels the potentiality of war and violence across the globe. Right. So I think this brings us to just clarifying that we're talking about a kind of anti-imperialism, which says, yes, the main enemy is at home where we are, but it's consistent 
opposition to all forms of imperialism. And that's different from another outlook that you find um, on the left, which has a kind of enemy of my enemy is my friend approach. Um, you know, the kind that there's this kind of politics which says that China and Russia aren't imperialist uh, and has an either uncritical or not very critical attitude to those states and to basically any other state that might be in conflict with the U.S., whether that be Iran, Syria, Cuba, Venezuela, you, you name it. Some people call this anti-NATO campism um, or just campism for short. Could you just say a, a, you know, a few more words about that kind of politics, which I think has become uh, more influential on the left than it once was? Yeah, two points I would respond to that. One, I think, again, like who, who gets to decide who is my enemy and who is not? So sure, some, you know, uh, some, you know, for many Americans, maybe China is not top on their head of their enemy or Russia is not on top of their head of their enemy, right? I, as someone who has family in Syria, sorry, Putin is my enemy. I'm not going to deny, like, I can't, you can't tell me that, well, he's not your enemy because he's not attacking you in the U.S., He's attacking my family in Syria. And that's just, I'm not going to be like, you know, have to choose who is the worst for me, Putin or whatever current U.S. president is. They're both my enemies. They're both attacking me and my family and putting us in danger. Second, I think that, again, that question of like, sure, technically they're claiming to be enemies, but are they really enemies? And again, it goes back to like, what, what, who's benefiting from the current world order? Who's benefiting from the status quo? Who's going to lose out if we actually build the world we want to see where people are put first, where corporations aren't plundering everything in order to line up their pockets in support with, with full support by various governments. And one one category, I, a framework I tell people to think about is, you know, since the launch of the global war on terror, um, now 20 plus years in, where we have seen time and time again, different states use the framework of terrorism and fighting terrorism in order to make clear that they can do whatever they want. Um, and there's it, everyone is doing this. It's the United States. It's Saudi Arabia. It's Iran. It's China. It's Russia. State after state after state. India, you know, when Kashmir, Turkey, and when they go after Kurdish folks, like, Again and again, we see this idea of these states learning from each other, sharing kind of like lessons learned, even if it's not officially in meetings, but also maybe even in meetings, um, how that they how they can collectively repress people demanding their rights um, across borders, across struggles, across movements. And so, again, it would push people to think about like. They're not seeing each other as enemies. Again, the big talk, yes. And yes, there's competition because they all want to line their pockets. Um, but if you're going to tell them, is are, are you all enemies to each other or are you seeing the people as your enemies? They're going to say the people. And we need to be very clear then that collectively as people, we need to take on these powers together. So true. So true. I think the other thing about just the notion of campism is there's it's a almost like a strange carnival looking glass. Um, so campism... Um, came out of post-World War II politics um, from uh, Stalin, in which to justify the fact that now Stalin was trying to consolidate a socialism in one country, they had abandoned uh, the common turn, so abandoned the idea that, that they would push for socialist revolution around the world. Um, and so to justify that, said, well, there's actually two camps. There's that of the anti-imperial camp, the democratic camp, which is the countries that were allied with, with the Soviet Union and that they're allied with the United States. Um, but since the fall of the Soviet Union, I mean, only the most myopic of individuals would not call Russia uh, a, a capitalist state. 
but still the kind of notion of, of campism is inherited and just continues to play the fine line. So another example is the so-called World Peace Council is an organization that was started in 1949 uh, by Stalin. It continues to be sponsored by Russia after, in, under the, the Putin regime. Um, and one of the things they did was these observers that would go to Syria and provide you know, eyewitness um, propaganda on behalf of the Assad regime. And so the very fact that things like the World Peace Council that were started uh, to justify uh, Stalin's uh, sort of control of the Soviet Union and the world has continued uninterrupted, that it was in favor of the uh, peaceful tanks invading Hungary in 56, that it was in favor of the peaceful invasion of Afghanistan. I'm giving a, a scare quotes over that for our listeners. Um, there's no notion of peace. And so it's a, it's a looking glass mirror where there's nothing democratic about Russia. There's nothing democratic about China. In the same way, there's nothing democratic about the United States. But this, this inheritor of the notion of there's two camps of the world actually doesn't make any sense if you know anything about global politics, but they're still regurgitated to back um, despots like Bashar al-Assad or the Iranian regime or Putin or, or, or a whole number of them, and are then on the flip side used to reinforce the notion that somehow Biden is on the, the, the side of democracy, which of course is absurd. And looking at his defense of Israel's genocidal actions are similar. There aren't a, a democratic forces and there's not undemocratic forces. There's one undemocratic force, which is the world's capitalist states, and they have shades of difference. They have shades of agreement. They have shades of conflict. But in the end, it's always working class people around the world, especially folks in the global south who receive the short end of that violent, violent stick. Right. So our kind of... Uh opposition to imperialism, which we can, you know, anti-imperialism, it's consistent. This says neither Washington nor, nor Beijing, for example. Um, it's an internationalist politics, right? It's what some people have called an internationalism from below. So what do you understand by that idea of an internationalism from below? Yeah, I think, you know, I think about principles of solidarity. I think about principles of people have agency outside of these powers I think one thing that we struggled a lot with um, when we were trying to, you know, get folks to understand why Syria was so important was people just could not get beyond the geopolitical uh, uh, geopolitics of all. It was just like, well, you know, it's these global powers are fighting each other and like we just need to be against the war. And it's like, okay, yeah, fine. <laughs> Against war is fine. But like, you're not actually listening to what Syrians are demanding, why they rose up, what they need in this moment. Um, why are we not respecting the fact that they know what they also, what they need um, in order to accomplish um, their own freedom and their own liberation? And I think that's when I think, when I think about internationalism from below, it's really centering again, like we were saying, people over states. It's really sent like, being aware of the geopolitics, geopolitics obviously are important. We need to be aware of who's, who, who is profiting, who is benefiting from all of this. But it cannot be at the expense of understanding the powerful daily acts people are doing on every single day in order to build the better world for themselves as well. Because if you get lost in the geopolitics, there's a lot of not hope in that. The hope comes from what people are doing every single day. 
And I think that's that's very important. And then and again, that that concept of like internationalism makes you then have to look at every situation and understand every situation on its own while making connections, while seeing similarities, while drawing the important connections that we need to do. But at times when we just say, when we talk about, when we talk about, you know, two forces against each other, or when we talk about, again, the geopolitics of it, we just pretend, okay, well, yeah, all those folks in that region, they're all dealing with the same thing. So Syria is Iraq, is Libya, and not like there's so many different nuances of all of these places. You know, you can't just lump them all together. Um, you can analyze in a similar framework. Of course, that's important. But when you just claim that they're the same, it it's leads to a miseducation of what's actually happening. And then if we don't actually know what's happening, then what is then how can we figure out what our role is to play um, in support wherever we may be, whether we're there on the ground, whether we're here in the United States or whatever part of the world um, we are fighting from. Yeah, I think it, I mean, it, it It speaks to, I think, one of the just most important tenets of Marxism, which is that socialism has to come from the self-emancipation of, of the working class. And I think internationalism from below is is that same thing. It's like we have to understand that liberation will only be achieved by the self-emancipation of working, struggling people around the globe um, by themselves. And that's a very different lens then I think through Rama, like you were saying, like you have to figure out all the mechanics of global politics, which is important when you get to the level of strategy and tactics and all that sort of stuff. But as a principle, I think we want to put forward that internationalism from below is the understanding that democracy, liberation, anything that with the strand of progressivism has to be brought about by the self-emancipation of, of, of the masses. And I think that thinking about uh, Palestine right now is a really good indicator of that. And so you, you think about some of the narratives about how we are going to liberate Palestine or stop the immediate genocide. And some of it flow through, um, well, we need to depend upon Iran to help give the military support, or Hezbollah is going to carry out some military action, or uh, the Saudis are going to step in and negotiate stuff. And like that is such just a shadow of what it would take. And uh, rather, I think we see we do see the hope of what that internationalism from below would look like with the massive demonstrations in the Arab world. I think we see uh, shadows of what that would look like with with uh, the Egyptians um, entering the streets of Egypt, despite the fact that pretty much all protest is illegalized and march to Tahrir Square for the first time in 10 years in solidarity with the Palestinians against Sisi who is the other jailer. And so I think that the, the international from below are those folks in the streets from below who are oftentimes the same people who are rising up against their own governments as they're our allies. And I think that, that what the engine is, who our allies are in emancipatory struggle and seeing that as those forces from below, I think it's just so, so essential and exemplifies is what it means to be internationalism from below. Well, then, Maybe let's move from those important points to talk about, you know, an unfortunate reality that's part of you know, part of the world today, which is that there are lots of situations where there are forces fighting against imperialism or against the state backed by imperialism, but they're under right wing leadership. Uh, so, for example, in Ukraine, there's a, a government which is waging a defensive war against Russian imperialism, a war that's at the same time caught up in an inter-imperialist inter rivalry between the, the West and uh, and Russia. But the Ukrainian government is committed to neoliberal capitalism. It would like to join NATO and the European Union. Uh, and although the Russian state and anti-NATO campuses exaggerate the strength of the far right, uh, Ukrainian nationalists in, in Ukraine, those forces are real, as Ukrainian leftists make very clear to us. 
And in a very different situation in Palestine, you have Hamas, which is the strongest political force, I think, uh, among people opposed to settler colonialism and as well opposed to the Palestinian Authority, which collaborates with Israeli settler colonialism. But Hamas's Islamist politics are conservative and it seeks to ally with the rulers of the Gulf states, Turkey and Iran, as uh, Palestinian socialists and feminists know very well. So for those of us who are supporters of our kind of anti-imperialism in countries like the US, Canada and the UK, where most of the listeners to this show are, how do we deal with this reality about you know, situations where you do have forces that are in conflict with imperialism, but under right-wing leadership? Yeah, a very big question um, <laughs> that does not have simple answers. Um, so I I tend to think of it just like, okay, what are what are the principles and the values that we want to uphold? And how do we both recognize the right of people to resist, the right of people to self-defense, and also understanding that not everyone necessarily who is taking up arms is an emancipatory force, is a liberatory force. And I think, you know, and again, that's where this nuance is so important um, and why, again, it's more complicated than like two campus and let's fight it out. Um, we need to really think through and make and think about like, and again, I'll, you know, I'll use Syria as like another kind of example here, because a lot of what folks would say when we'd be like, Syrians need your solidarity, and they'd be like, what does this mean, solidarity? Are you telling us to be in solidarity with these, you know, very violent armed groups? Um, Are you telling us to be in solidarity with these very counter-revolutionary forces? Are you telling us to be in solidarity with Al-Qaeda, with Daesh, all of this like ridiculous things that would come up and be like, no, I said be in solidarity with the Syrian people's struggle. They're very clear what they've been demanding and going out in the street and demanding. And if you actually paid attention to Syria, you would notice that when folks started taking up arms, there was a lot of conversations among Syrian revolutionaries of, is this actually what we need? Is this what's going to happen actually in reaction to this? And then even folks who who supported, you know, like, well, we need self-defense, we're also very clear, well, if the armed groups do not continue to follow the values of what we are as a revolution, we are going to protest against them. And that happens. That has happened, especially in Idlib, where certain, you know, Idlib has, you know, has been under control by forces that are not necessarily showcasing the power of what the revolution wanted. And people have come out and protested against that. And I think that's, again, where, like, when we talk about the need to focus in really on the people power, um, and at some point, it may include people who have taken up arms. I'm not someone who will tell people they do not have a right to self-defense. They do not have a right to that resistance. I think that is an important part of struggles as well. But how are how if when when that happens, are we not losing the bigger sight towards we have um, principles that we want to build on? We are trying to build a better world. And I'm someone who is, I will also say I am anti-militarist. So there is a tension there. And it's okay, I think, to be tension. Again, people want very simple, like, just tell me who I'm against or who I'm, I'm, I'm for. And yes, there are very clear examples that sometimes of that. Here are the oppressed people. Here are not the oppressed. But then as we're building a better world, we have to engage, I think, in in, in more nuance and be very clear that the world we're, be- we're building is one where there is liberation for all. There is freedom for all, even if it, that means having to take on people who supposedly are resisting in the name of our struggles. Yeah, I think just to add to that, um, uh, like how not to simplify it is hard. (laughs) Um, But I think what we're trying to avoid is, I think, two uh, possible hurdles. Um, One 
in particularly in thinking about the question of Hamas and currently, is to just say, well, the role of people who are progressive, left, socialists outside of Palestine, we have to condemn Hamas because there are conservative elements of it or whatever. The main thing we have to do is is condemn Hamas and really sort of uh, push that away. Um, I think the other poll to avoid is one to completely uncritically just say they are the leadership and everything goes and whatnot. I think in the middle, this is where the stuff that Rama is talking about gets a lot more complicated. Um, but I think that it's also in, this, in some ways not complicated. I think it's, you know, always on the side of the oppressed. It is saying, yes, I think that, you know, people have a right to resist. And I think that, um, you know, resistance against Israeli soldiers right now is something that's happening. And I think that that's an important that we defend people's right to do that. I think at the same time that we recognize that um, in Palestine, uh, while the the various resistance factions, the Al-Qasim brigades and whatnot, are, are very popular, that doesn't mean that people have political allegiance to Hamas as a political body. Um, and that a lot of the, 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 the sort of um, the gist of Palestinian politics is going beyond some of the old uh, political factions. And I think our, our idea is that we want to try to um, build bridges of solidarity with the folks who are trying to make those connections, trying to sort of forge alternatives in a way that aren't sort of sectarian to the, the immediate um, uh, sort of demands of the day, um, and trying to chart a way through that. And as Rama said, it's 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 quite complicated in some ways because you, you have to figure out the 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 sort of current context, the current conjecture, and then what you say about it. At the same time, that is very simple, in which one should always be on the side of oppress of, of the oppressed um, and avoid those two poles of just being a, a critical person from without and not understanding that there's oppressor and the oppressed and not just uh, cheerleading um, various political uh, groupings that we may have disagreements with and that those disagreements occur in conversation with, connection with, and collaboration with actual uh, people on the ground, um, actual Palestinians who have a say and not just, um, you know, doing so uh, sitting in one's couch, being a Monday morning quarterback for resistance move- movements in countries that you are not. If I can just add, actually add one more thing here too. I do think like, you know, we spend, we, you know, we spend a lot of time digging into like, yeah, this is what the problematics of, you know, some leftist folks uh, uh, thinking on these global affairs and what's been very, you know, frustrating with what's been happening in the last two months is, you know, the liberal take on what's happening on Palestine and how much harder it makes it then for us on the left to be like, this is actually why we are, we have problems with you all saying, you know, we're going to, you know, obviously we're pro-Russia or pro-China or whatever kind of tanky, tankies, campy stuff is, campism is happening there because people will just be like, oh, see, these folks are right about everything about the liberals. And I think that's where like that liberal hypocrisy makes it so much harder. I remember, you know, again, Syria is an example, but like Ukraine, when Russia invaded Ukraine, you know, a year and a half ago, and people were like, see the hypocrisy of the Western world and how they're treat, you know, how they're welcoming to Ukrainian refugees and everyone wants to boycott Russia and here's all the weapons going into Ukraine. And I'm like, I understand it all. And also how do we use this and as the example of actually how the world potentially should respond to the, these types of things? And then a year and a half later, 
it's all up in our face that actually it's all, you know, it's it's all based on racism. It's all based on, you know, U.S. interests and Western interests and all of that. And that makes it so much more difficult for us to be able to pull people away from the ideologies that we find problematic on the left because they're like, well, they were right about anything. And they have a point. They are right about liberal hypocrisy. They are right that Palestine was is does not is not going to get the same support that Ukraine is getting. Um, and so I think there's like that po- angle of things that like have been also frustrating in recent weeks. As it's just like y'all, like we we're trying to get people to understand that you should be against occupation everywhere. You should be against um, imperialism everywhere. And then the liberal hypocrisy comes up and it just makes it even more difficult to then organize around these things um, and make people under better understand like why potentially, you know, people getting arms from the U.S. governments, whether in Syria and Ukraine, um, is a necessity for these people and does not make them pawns of U.S. imperialism. Um, or again, to have more of the nuanced conversations of like, yes, you know, we wish everyone was treated like Ukrainian refugees doesn't mean Ukrainian refugees shouldn't get the treatment they did get. That's great. That's just the example of the world. Um, and I think that's like, you know, continuing to push on these, like when people are understanding these hypocrisies to be like, yeah, that's why we need to build on, on our better worldview that takes into consideration all of these things. And just to I mean, wrap up on, on this point, I think we can't, um, underline too heavily the importance of making the distinction that you've been making. On the one hand, we're in unconditional solidarity with all struggles against imperialism and against colonialism, and that includes the right to armed resistance among the oppressed, right? Um, But that is actually completely different from the idea of giving political support to a specific political force that's involved in in that struggle um, among, among the oppressed. And we can make that distinction, and also we can make another distinction, which is to say, even when a political force that we strongly disagree with among you know, an oppressed people uh, is when it's in a military conflict, for example, you know, fighting against Israeli tanks, you can say we favor, we're not neutral in that situation, right? We favor a military victory for the oppressed, even when we actually strongly disagree with the politics of the leadership in that situation. So we can make those distinctions. We just have to take the time to explain these things. Um, Mindful of the time, I just wanted to bring us to one last question before we wrap up. Um, And that is when we think about the, the vision that inspires us as supporters of internationalism from below and consistent anti-imperialism, I think we have a vision of universal human freedom. That's really at the, the core of these politics. So could you just share any thoughts you have about that, about our, about our vision and uh, what we ultimately seek to achieve through our opposition to, to imperialism? Yeah. I mean, I, I think about, you know, what, it, what inspires me a lot is just like, you know, wanting to ha- make sure everyone in the world has what they need in order to accomplish what they want in life, you know? And I think so much, again, of what the world order is currently is about extraction, is about lining the pockets of a few, is about keeping, you know, certain states powerful um, over the rest of the globe, um, just completely the opposite of, like, what I imagine is freedom. And I think it's important, too, to think about, like, how these issues of internationalism also come back, you know, home and the vi- vice versa of that. So, like, you know, it's not coincidence that the the Senate is currently going to be taking up a bill that both increases military funding, you know, to Ukraine, to Israel, but also increases mil- border militarization. And I think that's where, to me, I have hope of people being like, no, actually, we don't want to fund, you know, this type of militarization that, like, 
both kills people at our border and then kills people in Gaza. Like, you know, like this is not what we want. We want a world where people are able to travel freely, you know, and there is no fear of militarism. There is no fear of borders and people are able to get what they need um, and see their loved ones and see their families and are free from all of these kind of various systems that imprison us, including the prisons, you know, prisons themselves. And I think, you know, just holding on to that is so important because it then makes you also understand like all people, like we need, again, that solidarity with all people because we want, we want all people to have these opportunities um, to, to live. And, and, and yeah, and I think that's, again, the power of what we're seeing now as folks are taking to the streets in support of Palestine, it forces people to talk about other struggles too. Like I think, and that's where I think, you know, someone who's done Palestine work for, you know, a decade now, it's been very powerful to see that of what actually opens you up, what it opens up for people when they take on Palestine. Um, and that's such the opposite of what like, you know, in in more liberal circles, they're like, no, we can't touch it because like, you know, who knows what's, we're going to get shut down, we're going to be repressed, which is all real. Like the censorship and the repression is very real. Um, but I also think it opens us up to think about things globally um, and and to think about all even even all the different powers that, again, like we said, are benefiting from oppression all over the globe. Yeah, I think there's like um, three things that I would say about that. Um, and I mean, the first is just go back to, um, you know, the notion of imperialism. And, you know, I always have a bad habit, perhaps, of quoting people like Lenin and Bukharin, but I'm going to do it now anyway. Um, that Bukharin talks about that in order to end imperialism, he says the the place of the idea of defending or extending the boundaries of the bourgeois state that bind the productive forces of world economy hand and foot. This power advances the slogan of abolishing state boundaries and merging all the people into one socialist family. And so I think that like the ending of of imperialism is that very thing: abolishing state boundaries and merging all the people into one socialist family, um, and allowing for that kind of self determination and the ability to 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 ha- be able to choose um, what you want and to have the resources to do that. Just like Rama was saying, um, and I think that the the current Palestine protests really show that so much because you have so many people who are so involved out in the streets, particularly in the U.S. That I think is probably the biggest um, mobilization, the biggest movement against U.S. imperialism since the war in Iraq. But it's one in which U.S. boots aren't on the ground. So the the element of solidarity is even more profound because people see the connections, even though it's not like directly U.S. troops are carrying it out. It's really close to that, but it's not direct that, that people are still coming out multiple times a week in so many cities and getting arrested and risking all these things out of the sense of solidarity is so palpable. Um, And um, for me, when you ask the question, one thing that I thought of from my own experience that I'll just kind of close is, um, I remember when the Egyptian revolution was happening, at the same time, there was an occupation of the Wisconsin state capitol. And I remember being at the Wisconsin state capitol um, and participating there and protesting and occupying against the the, the Republican uh, legislation to, to, to uh, institute um, anti-union legislation. And I got this like text message that was a picture of a uh, banner in Tahrir Square that said, Tahrir stands with Wisconsin, one world, one pain. And like that sense of I'm struggling here and you're struggling there. And they're kind of about different things, but they're part of the shared fight to 
for self-determination, for liberation and freedom that can merge all peoples into one socialist family is really, I think, how I would articulate it. Rama, Brian, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you both. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcast wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word-of-mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com.